Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me back to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians and we'll continue in our series there looking this morning at the topic, the importance of integrity in a believer's life. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 12 and actually uh, we'll read down through verse 4 of chapter 2. It's a bit unfortunate that there is a Uh, chapter break where uh, there is one and we'll just continue with the thought of chapter 1 right into chapter 2. Paul says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Father, we want to pray for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts that we might understand your precious word. We know according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, you have given us your word, first of all, that we might discover salvation in Jesus Christ. And then having discovered salvation, that we might grow in our faith. And be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we pray for that process to be ever-growing in our lives. 
And God, we pray for integrity in believers' lives. That we would be that faithful witness to a watching world. Because people are watching. And God, I pray that even as the Apostle Paul conducted himself with integrity, that would be a characteristic of our witness as well. Father, I pray that everything that we do would not simply be with our own lives in mind, but we would think about the impact upon others. God, help us to live lives of impact as we shine the light of Jesus in a dark and dying world. May they see in us a difference. May there be a hunger and a seeking after that which the believer possesses. I pray for that one here today who is hurting. I pray for their comfort. For these that have lost loved ones, God, we pray through the power of your Spirit that you would fill the void in their lives with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Work in all believers' lives here this morning. Lord, conform us more to the image of Christ. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. President Abraham Lincoln sent a very important message on one occasion to a gentleman by the name of Edwin Stanton. Edward Stanton was Lincoln's Secretary of War and the timing was very important. It was a very critical junction in the Civil War. And so Lincoln called a messenger in and had a letter that he wanted delivered to his secretary of war. And he said, here, take this to Mr. Stanton and come again as quickly as possible and and bring his response to me. Well, the messenger came back and Lincoln said to the messenger, sir, what did Mr. Stanton say? And the messenger looked down at his feet and kind of shuffled his feet and and, uh, hung his head in shame and he wouldn't respond. And the president said, sir, what did Mr. Stanton say about my message to him? And the messenger looked up at him and said, Mr. President, Edwin, Edwin Stanton says that you are a fool. And he shredded your letter and he threw it down. President Lincoln paused. And he said, well, you know something? Mr. Stanton is usually right. And so maybe I need to look into this matter if he says I'm a fool. Folks, most people know what it's like to be criticized. In fact, it seems like the more public your role is or your position is, probably the more likely it is going to be that you will be criticized at some point. Well, we know the Apostle Paul fit into that scenario very well. Paul was criticized. He was criticized by the Jews. They didn't like the fact that Paul had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so everywhere Paul went, the Jewish people would criticize him and oppose him. 
We know that even some believers in Christ likewise opposed and criticized the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians at Corinth were one such group. Now out of all of Paul's churches we could say that the Corinthians were like his problem child. You see as he wrote to the Philippians for example on the other hand his constant repeating theme was joy because he said that they alone had joined with him as partners in the gospel and everywhere Paul went the Philippians would find him and find out what his needs were and they would contribute to his needs and try to help him in the propagation of the gospel. But the Corinthians were a church, they were filled with division and problems and they were likewise always criticizing their leader, the Apostle Paul. Now what led to some of the criticism that he's responding to here is that he hoped to come to the Corinthians and spend the winter with them. He wrote about that at the end of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he said, If the Lord wills, I'm going to come to you and spend the winter with you before I go on to Macedonia. He wasn't presumptuous that he would be able to. He said, If the Lord wills. Well, Paul went ahead at the time and he sent Timothy. And when he had a bad report from Timothy, Paul made a brief and painful visit. And then he wrote what is referred to by scholars as the painful letter. Now we don't have a copy of that, but 2 Corinthians makes reference to that painful letter. And instead of spending the winter with them... Uh, he decided that he would simply see them on his, uh, after he got done in Macedonia and on his way to Jerusalem, he would stop in at Corinth. That was going to be his plan B. Apparently he could not bear to think of another painful visit. Now this gave Paul's critics ammunition to say that Paul couldn't be trusted because he was changing his travel plans. And so they claimed that perhaps his yes didn't really mean yes and his no didn't really mean no. Well, like I pointed out a minute ago, Paul had just said if the Lord wills. Now something happened, we're not really sure of what it was, but in chapter 1 he speaks of being burdened excessively. Something happened additionally in Paul's life that made him change his plans. It's kind of like those commercials that says, life comes at you fast. Sometimes things happen in our lives. And, and, and all of us have experienced that and so we have to change some little nuance in our plans. We, we've all experienced that but to the Corinthians such a trivial matter was a big deal. They were looking for something to make a big deal out of. Now what we see in this passage this morning is the importance of integrity in a believer's life. 
we're going to see how Paul responded to them and the testimony that Paul was able to give of his life. There's great lessons in this for us because as we walk and live in this world, you and I need to conduct ourselves like the Apostle Paul with integrity. And when our lives are put under a microscope, we need to know, we need to have a clean conscience that we have done what God has instructed us to do. And so the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning, and here's where we're going to spend most of our time, I want you to notice the peace of having a clean conscience. Now in verse 12 we see Paul uh, boasting his, his habit was to boast only in the Lord and in the cross of Jesus Christ. But here he boasts in the fact that he's got a clean conscience before God. Now they can remember Paul had spent 18 months with them and he testifies of how he had conducted himself. First of all, about this he points out that he had conducted himself in holiness. I want you to think about holiness with me a minute. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 16, Peter says that you and I need to gird up the loins of our minds and we need to be prepared to think like believers and act like believers, conducting ourselves in holiness. And the reason we need to do that is because, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, it is because the Lord is holy. And so the child of God needs to reflect this attribute of God. Because God is holy, those who claim to follow Him need to be holy as well. It's how we need to live our lives. And Paul could boast that he had conducted himself in holiness. It's like he also says in Romans chapter 13 that seeing how late it is that our salvation is closer now than it has ever been before, we need to uh, take off the clothes of this dark age and we need to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and we need to live as shining lights in this world. Well, Paul had a peace of mind that he had done that. He had lived a life of separation unto the Lord. He had lived a life of consecration to the Lord. In fact, to the single folks at Corinth, he even gave that illustration to them about their lives. Uh, some of them were wanting to get married as of course all single people hope to get married one day. And Paul said, you know what, I'm, I'm single and that's given me a certain amount of freedom because I can dedicate all of my time to serving Jesus Christ. But again his testimony was he conducted himself in holiness. Not only in holiness, but also about this, this clean conscience, he had a peace that he had conducted himself in sincerity. Now, he uses a compound word here that has to do with not having any wax. You say, what in the world is he talking about there? 
Well, we know in ancient times there in the open air marketplaces, those who made their pottery, they would take their wares and, and set them out on tables in the open air marketplaces and they would sell their beautiful painted pottery. Now, sometimes in the process of making that pottery and, and drying it and baking it, there would be cracks in it. And some of the unscrupulous dealers, they would take wax and they would fill in those cracks and let it dry. And, and then they would mold it to, to blend in with the rest of the pottery. And then they would continue. They would paint over it. And so what you had was a cracked pot, even though it looked good on the outside. They, they said that if you were to hold it up at the light, you could see the light coming through those places where, where the cracks were and had been filled in with wax. It gave kind of a different hue in the sunlight. And so when you were buying pottery, if you would hold it up in the sunlight and turn it and you couldn't see any cracks, uh, it was a piece of pottery, structural integrity, and, and, and there was a phrase for it, sinna sere. Sinna sere, without any wax. Without any wax. In other words, it was a piece of integrity. And Paul says, that's how my life is. As you look at my life. Before God, I know that I've conducted myself in holiness and in sincerity. There's no wax in my life. The work that God has done in my redemption is the real thing. God's changed me and I'm a new creation in Christ. And I know that I've conducted myself properly as I walk in this age. You see, people are watching, aren't they? People are watching. Like the story I told you about one time, the preacher up on the roof nailing shingles and a little boy watching. And the preacher looked down and said, what do you want to see, son? You want to see how an expert does this? He said, nah, I just want to see if what a preacher says when he smashes his thumb. <laughs> People are watching. You know who I find so remarkable about this is a young man by the name of Daniel in the Old Testament. As we study about Old Testament figures, Daniel is a favorite of many. Well, in chapter 6, Darius decides he's going to make Daniel the leader over all of the other uh, leaders in his various provinces. And when all those other leaders get word of Daniel being put in charge over them, they say, you know what? We need to find something about Daniel's life that we can accuse him because they didn't want a young Jewish boy being leader over them. And they looked at his life. They put his life under a microscope and they turned it and they examined it and they examined it. And they kept on looking for something in his life and finally decided, you know what? We are never going to find anything about this guy unless it has to do with his faith. And so they convinced Darius that Darius needed to pass a decree that nobody could pray to any other god. They could only pray to Darius, 
They were stroking Darius's ego. And he said, that sounds good. And so he passed that decree. Well, that wasn't going to change what Daniel did. And so the Bible says that Daniel continued just like before praying to his God. And so they accused Daniel. But the point is they had to find something like that because every direction they looked at his life, they couldn't find anything wrong with his life by which to accuse him. Now folks, that's integrity. And that's a clean conscience. Paul lived among the Corinthians in a very immoral climate. If you wanted to insult somebody in ancient times and call them an immoral person, you would simply call them a Corinthian. Because I guess Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas back then. You know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was that kind of culture. And yet Paul had the confidence that he had conducted himself in holiness and sincerity. Now folks, what do people see when they look at your life, when they look at my life? Do they see one standard at home and a different standard at work? One standard at home, a different standard at church? Do they see inconsistency? Could your closest friends and family members testify of your integrity? Well, with Paul, they could. And his life could stand the scrutiny of being held up to the light. They accused Paul of writing one way and being another way in person. They said, you know, your letters seem so strong and harsh, but in real person you seem so meek and mild. Well, Paul says in verse 13 that he's written nothing else to them but what they can read and understand. And there's a play in the Greek on the words. He, he uses one word, ana, gnoskete, and, and then he uses another word, epe, gnoskete, ana and epe. It's a play on words. The first word refers to what they read from him. The second word translated understand is what they're able to see of his life. In other words, Paul is saying that what you read from my hand and what you're able to read from my life is one and the same. It's not different messages. Now finally, concerning this point, Paul says that the benefit and joy of a clean conscience uh, will be with him in this matter all the way to the day of judgment. He's confident that he can go all the way to the Bema seat of Christ one day and there before the Bema seat of Christ, his integrity will be seen. Folks, what a, what a wonderful thing to possess in life. Amen? A clean conscience and the peace that comes from that I want you to understand something this morning God gives you and me a conscience the conscience is an inward moral code that God puts in us now Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 2 he says for 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. He's talking there about this inward moral code that God puts in every person. God gives us a conscience and we're not to ignore our conscience. The conscience is like a built-in warning system. On the night of November 27th, 1983, Avianca Flight 011 was en route from Paris to Bogota via Madrid. Now there were no mechanical issues with the 747 jet. The crew was very experienced as well. However, on the approach to the runway in Madrid, the uh, the jet crashed, killing 181 of the 192 passengers, including the crew. Now as the investigation got underway, it was soon discovered that the pilots became disoriented and they didn't really understand their location and they didn't really understand their altitude. And as investigators were listening to the black box and and trying to figure out what happened, they could hear all of a sudden very clearly in the background that the plane's warning system started going off. Danger, pull up. Danger, pull up. Danger, pull up. What was puzzling to them was the voice of the pilot that they heard next. The pilot's voice could very clearly be heard to say, Shut up, gringo. And he snapped off the warning system. And a few seconds later, him and 180 others were thrust out into eternity. He shut off the warning system. Folks, God gives us a conscience. Don't ignore it. Don't try to switch it off. Now the conscience is not infallible. It's got to be sharpened and kept in check by the infallible Word of God. By reading the Word of God and meditating on Scripture, our conscience is sharpened. But now there's two dangers with the conscience. The first danger is that our conscience can become seared. The Bible talks about a seared conscience. And this is when we allow sin to reign unchecked in our life and we ignore it and we ignore it and we ignore it and we just continue in sin and finally there is a callousness that develops and we don't even care that we're sinning anymore. We don't even uh, feel the conviction or the guilt. The conscience has been seared. We read the headlines today and and we wonder how in the world some people can do the atrocities that they do and feel no remorse about it whatsoever. It's because they have a conscience that is seared. 
Over time, that warning has gone off and they've ignored it and pushed it aside and pushed it aside and pushed it aside and they don't even uh, have a sensitivity anymore to the things wrong that they do. Well, there's another danger to the conscience. And that's having a weak conscience. You know, the old game kids used to play, you know, step on a crack, break my mother's back, that little game you played when you were a kid. Oh, no, I stepped on the crack. Am I going to break my mother's back? I'm going to worry about it. There are some people who go to bed at night and they lay awake all night worrying. Oh, no, now what I said to him, what I said to her, did I say the right thing? Did I? They, they worry about they, everything about their life. They're, they're, they feel guilty even when there's not even a reason to feel guilty. Oh, no, I, I'm guilty about this. And they live with this constant plague uh oh uh oh maybe there's something wrong a weak conscience some have a weak conscience others have a seared conscience but it is a wonderful thing to have a clear conscience and that's how Paul lived his life can you say this morning that before God you have a clean conscience every scenario you walk into you are the same person you're consistent can you say that you walk in holiness in your life as a testimony to the Lord do you have a clean conscience if so there's great peace that comes from that now the second thing I want you to notice this morning, we won't spend much time here, but I want you to notice the freedom of having a truthful tongue. The freedom of having a truthful tongue. And Paul is saying in this section, our yes is yes and our no, no. We, we don't say yes, yes and no, no in the same breath. We know that all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God. You see what he's saying here? No doubt he's going back to the instruction that Jesus had given in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, don't be the kind of person that people, when you tell them something, they say, I, you know what, I, I don't really know that I can take your word for it. Would you put your hand on a, on a stack of Bibles and swear to it? Will you promise? Do you guarantee it? And, and, and people that, people that uh, have to make all kinds of vows when they finally do get around to telling the truth, they got to make all kinds of vows to convince others that all oh, this time I'm really telling the truth. Paul said, don't be like that. Have such a, 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 an integrity about your speech that your yes means yes and your no means no. They were questioning his motives. They were questioning his commitment. And, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. I have told you, I told you from the beginning exactly what I was going to do if the Lord will. He could examine his tongue and know that before God he had been truthful with the Corinthians. 
Examine your words. Examine your tongue. Is there consistency in it? Now, perhaps the greatest lesson on this in the New Testament is James chapter 3. James goes on and on and on for about 12 or 14 verses there talking about the importance of the tongue and how this little four-ounce member of our body, here's, a, here's a, maybe a six-foot-two, 220-pound man, and you know what? He can get in trouble over four ounces behind his lips, right? It can set the whole entire course of his life on fire. I had the testimony of one of our members recently telling me about another guy that we know. Not a member here, another guy. that went, And he said, you know what, Scott? I was so disappointed to see this guy out on the ball field coaching. A call was made and this guy who gives testimony of being a follower of Jesus Christ, he said, you can't believe the way he acted and the things he started saying. And he said, he didn't know I was there. And I walked up to him after the game and I introduced myself. I said, hey, remember me? And the guy looked at me and it's kind of like you could see it all over his face. He knew that a fellow believer was there at the game and had heard him go off like he had. We've got to be servants of Christ with our language. And Paul says, I've always been that way. And he makes an analogy here with the promises of God. All of the promises of God, as in the Old Testament, for example, are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is God's yes. He's the fulfillment of God's work in human history. God is truthful. And so as the book of Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. God had been telling the people about this for century after century after century after century about the promise coming the Messiah. And finally, the New Testament comes and the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth. His Son. Christ is God's yes and amen. And all the promises of God are fulfilled in Him and can be trusted in Him. For example, 1 John 5, 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God that you may know that through Him you have eternal life. You never have to fear getting before God one day and saying, I've trusted what your word says and trusted Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And God says, ha, 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 I was just playing a joke on you. I didn't mean it. Depart from me. No, you can know that as you stand before God, if you're in Christ, Christ is God's amen and his yes. And if you've committed your life to Christ, that your sin is covered. And forgiven. And you have salvation through Him. You can know that. Because God is a God of integrity. God is a God who can be trusted. And when God says something, you can take it to the bank. It's better than taking it to the bank. And so God's integrity in speech 
ought to affect the believer's integrity in speech. And when that happens, you can have not only a peace about a clean conscience, but you can have that freedom of knowing that you never, you never have to try to chase down your words. What did I tell him? Oh, what I what I tell her? What I tell him? Some people are, you know, the the web is so deep it finally catches up on them. And Paul's like, it's not how my life is at all. My yes is yes and my no is no. Well, I want to give you some lessons in closing this morning. Lesson number one, first of all, learn God's Word. Meditate on it. Know it. You say, now in a, in a message about a clean conscience and a, and a pure tongue, truthful tongue, why in the world would you be saying learn God's Word first? Because remember, that's the foundation to our life. That's to be where our conduct and our speech comes from. The Word of God is to be that solid foundation that guides everything about our life. You don't want a weak conscience. You don't want a seared conscience. You want a conscience that is biblical, that is guided and directed by the Word of God. Second lesson, practice continual watchfulness and prayer. Recognize the seriousness of sin. Be sensitive to sin. You see, if you aren't, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart. And if you repeatedly push that aside, pretty soon you can get to the place where you can just sin without any guilt or conscience over it whatsoever. That's a dangerous place to be. There needs to be a healthy biblical sensitivity to sin in the believer's life. And so watch your life. And the moment the Holy Spirit says, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. This is wrong in your life. This is something you need to deal with. Then you need to deal with that. You need to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you to do and then a third lesson it was King David remember who said oh God set a guard over my mouth keep watch over the door of my lips and so as King David did ask God to set a guard over your lips examine your words to other people do you try to help them or hurt them? To edify them or to tear them down? How about in a group of people like at church? Are you always negative and critical with your words? And if you are, does that reflect a bad spirit, a bitter spirit? How do you use the gift of language that God has given to man? Maybe you're dishonest. Maybe people can't trust your yes is really meaning yes. Maybe they can't trust your no is really meaning no. But you need to deal with that. Maybe you've hurt somebody with your words. And you need to go to that person and say, Forgive me because I didn't use my words the way a child of God should. 
the peace of a clean conscience and the freedom of a truthful tongue. That ought to be something that's a part of every believer's life. It is a part of your life and my life. God, may it be so. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to ask you this morning to stand. Maybe the Lord has been convicting you lately of something that you assuredly don't need to keep putting off. Maybe the Lord had for months and months has been convicting you about your lostness and that you need Christ in your life. Come forward. I'd like to pray with you about that. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. You need to be born again. And that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're looking for a church home. You step out and come forward. This series is on ministry. And the the Bible says we need to have a ministry together, linking arm in arm with one another. Functioning as the body of Christ, the different members in place. So you need a corporate family, the family of God. Perhaps God has brought something to attention in your life about integrity. That you need to come forward this morning and just kneel before God, perhaps in a public way. And say, God, here's something about my conduct. Here's something about my sincerity. Here's something about my language that needs to be dealt with. And I'm asking you to deal with it.